Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show, we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, Megan O'Sullivan, is the author of the new book, Windfall, How the New Energy Abundance Upends Global Politics and Strengthens American Power. And we kick off our conversation with a discussion of the ways in which the natural gas boom here in the United States is changing international diplomacy and geopolitics. It's fascinating stuff. Megan is the Kirkpatrick Professor of the Practice of International Relations at the Harvard Kennedy School and has had a career in government and the think tank world. She served for a time as the Deputy National Security Advisor for Iraq and Afghanistan during the Bush administration, and she was one of the first American civilian officials on the ground in Baghdad after the city fell to U.S. forces in 2003. We discuss these events and more, including being mentored by the late Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Before we begin, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone out there who has been supporting the show on Patreon. If you want to become a Patreon and you want to unlock some bonuses like bonus episodes and get a complimentary access to my Don's Digest Global News Clips service and also my special knowledge pack of people to follow on social media and my easy four-step guide to understanding a global crisis in under two hours, then become a premium subscriber on Patreon. Thank you all for your support. All right, here's my conversation with Megan O'Sullivan. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Energy scarcity was kind of the state that the world was in maybe 10 or 10 or so years ago, where many people, um, countries, governments, companies, individuals, investors, were really all concerned about, did the world have enough energy to continue to propel economic growth and to do so at, you know, was there enough energy at a reasonable price that it wouldn't be a constraint on growth and prosperity? This was a very, very real fear. Um, and it drove decisions of these entities. It drove grand strategies. It, gro- it drove investment decisions. Um, and so what we've seen in the last 10 years is this shift to abundance, which is, um, you know, very narrowly defined by more, just more volumes of oil, of gas, and new forms of energy, um, particularly in the renewable sphere. So we're seeing a lot more energy available at prices 
which are commercial. So a lot of this energy we knew was in the ground, particularly the oil and gas reserves that have been developed in North America and America in particular. We knew it was in the ground, but we didn't know that we didn't know how to produce it at a cost which made sense to produce it. And that has changed. And with it, we have this huge new volume of resource, um, not just in the United States, but potentially in other parts of the world. Um, and with that abundance has come a number of changes. We could talk about some of them being in terms of market changes and how those have uh, had real impacts. But the net effect of this abundance is that People who are looking to make strategy, again, whether it's in a government or in a business or as an individual, no longer really need to be constrained by this idea of energy scarcity. So it's not in the in the near term or the medium term, I would say. So Maybe. how how is this this trend of, of energy abundance ship shaping international relations or is it shaping international relations in any meaningful way? Yeah, and that's the, the whole thesis um, of my new book called Windfall, which is that this new energy abundance really is transforming foreign policy. And energy has always been a big driver of foreign affairs. Um, this has been true even before the age of oil and gas. And it will be true as we move into the age of renewable energy, that energy really shapes the decisions and the constraints and the opportunities that that countries have to interact with one another. And so what we're seeing, to put it more tangibly, and happy to go into any... Yeah, let's, let's talk details, yeah. Um, the United States is the best example because it is in the United States where you've actually seen huge changes in production. Um, so you've got big volumes of oil and gas being produced that were not being produced five or ten years ago. So this has had some pretty obvious economic benefits. It's had benefits on our energy position, meaning that we import uh, far less energy than we did before. In fact, we're now a net exporter of oil and or not, we're a net exporter of products and we are at least exporting some crude oil and liquefied natural gas. This is all very, very new in the last year or two in both cases. But the, the, the changes go way beyond just simply meaning we don't have to import as much from other countries. It means that we have new sources of power. So let me give you an example of the soft power. If, if we look back 10 years ago, we wouldn't have to look very hard to find um, leaders newspapers, magazines from other countries talking about how America is in this terrible and irreversible decline. Mm -hmm. Now, this revolution in energy, which a lot of countries have, have has envied, has really underscored that America's drive and America's propensity for innovation and America's ingenuity and its ability to reinvent itself and create solutions to pressing problems like energy dependence is alive and well. And so a lot of countries have looked at this and thought, well, this is, you know, this is something that is strongly in the category of, you know, maybe we're quick to dismiss America as being in decline. So that's kind of an uh, amorphous, but in some ways, you know, it has changed some of the conversations overseas about America's trajectory. A much more tangible um, argument could have to do with the sanctions that were put in place on Iran and how those sanctions really contributed to the ability of the United States and its allies to get uh, an agreement with Iran over its um, 
the, 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 the idea is that uh, any sort of like shock to the oil markets that sanctions on Iran might uh, have produced could be mitigated by an increase in production in the United States. Exactly. Exactly. That in the past sanctions, we've put sanctions on many countries that were big oil producers. But if you look carefully, it was always done when the price of oil was low and people had a sense that there weren't going to be big negative economic implications from adding sanctions. The sanctions that went in place under President Obama on Iran's oil exports happened in the context of very, very tight markets and high oil prices. And it was really a huge benefit to American diplomats going around the world, getting support for these sanctions to be able to say, look, incidentally, America has every year in the last several years produced one million additional barrels hmm. of oil a day. And so if you're looking at Iran, which might have been exporting, say, two and a half million barrels of oil, it makes you feel a little bit better that if you take some Iranian supply off the market, you know you're going to have more American supply and you're going to have the help of the Saudis. That's interesting. I've never thought of uh, the sort of diplomatic strategy being uh, enabled in part by energy strategy. Yeah, that, that That's an interesting take. No, and, and it's actually, you know, that that's one of many examples. I mean, you can even look at the uh, the pursuit of the, the Paris Climate Agreement and how, in fact, I think President Obama and his administration's hand was really strengthened by the fact that American carbon emissions had come down very dramatically over the preceding years. Because so principally of the use of like natural gas, which is cleaner than, than coal and, and oil. Exactly. That we have switched from natural gas to, I mean, from coal to natural gas. And this was just a market reaction because natural gas was mm -hmm. cheaper, but it, it resulted in a decline in our emissions. And that gave our diplomats credibility mm -hmm. first going to China and then going to the rest of the world and saying, look, not only is America committed to this, um, but we actually, we've already demonstrated that it's in our ability to bring down our emissions. So, so there's lots of ways, as you say, that energy can enable diplomacy. Can, can I offer maybe a, a counterpoint? You can tell me if I'm wrong um, to to your thesis, which is that even in this sort of era of energy abundance in which you you identify and, and define in in your book, we like our relationship, the American's relationship with Saudi Arabia, seems not to have changed tremendously uh, over the last you know you know three presidents say. Um, you know, that it's fundamentally, you know, it's, it's, it's a relationship based on, you know, uh, our access to, to oil. And if nothing else, if anything, it seems under the Trump administration, you know, the U.S. and Saudi ties have gotten even closer. Um, so it seems that we haven't sort of been able to extricate ourselves, at least from Saudi Arabia in, in, in that way, or at least our energy abundance haven't, hasn't offered us that kind of cushion. Well, let me make two points there because it's a very interesting and important point you're making. On the one hand, I think Americans think, oh, if we're not importing oil from Saudi Arabia or other countries, then then we don't have to be involved in the Middle East because we're less concerned about them because our relationship, as you mentioned, has historically had oil and access to oil as a big component. But that misses the point that the market for oil is a global one. And as long as the United States is connected to the rest of the global oil market, which it will be almost under any scenario. 
So we're not looking at a situation where America can completely cut itself off, meet all of its own energy needs without having to interact with the market. And as long as we're involved in the market, then what happens in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, um, actually matters to the global price, which still matters to the United States. So in some ways, energy will continue to be an element of our relationship with Saudi Arabia. Now, one of the reasons that I think our relationship doesn't look as different as some people might expect is because there are a lot of issues that we need to deal with Saudi Arabia that have nothing to do with energy. Um, and then, you know, the third point I would make is I do think there is scope for changing the tone of the relationship, because even if we acknowledge this point I made about how oil is sold on a global market, so if supply comes offline in Saudi Arabia, the price goes up for everybody, no matter where they're getting their oil from. Even if we acknowledge that, I think the Saudis, and I traveled to Saudi Arabia um, a few times a year, the Saudis are very conscious that we're in a different energy position. And so it does change the tone of the relationship. I wouldn't say it's as dramatic as many people had hoped or expected, but it does mean that we at least have the ability to raise other issues. So I used to work for President Bush, and I know quite well that when two heads of state are meeting, there are only so many big issues that can be covered in the meeting. And with Saudi Arabia, oil was probably, you know, one or two on that list every time. If that's no longer on the list, there's room for other things to be discussed in the relationship. Hmm. Now, okay. whether Trump decides to take advantage of that or not, you know, uh, is a different matter. But I think there is more room to maneuver. So is there any other example, because the ones that you have, have uh, explained are, are really interesting, of how any sort of tangible examples of how in, in like a meaningful way U.S. energy abundance is kind of shaping global geopolitics? Sure. Let me um, give you an example that won't be, you know, something that maybe many of your listeners have read about. And that is um, that because there are new supplies on the markets, as I mentioned, coming from the United States, they've changed how the markets worked. So basically, they have meant that OPEC cannot be as effective as it used to be for reasons we can talk about. But it's also true in natural gas markets. So maybe 10 years ago, natural gas was a, you know, a scarce commodity in the sense that it was really a seller's market and that countries had to really you know, they had to vie to get the supplies of natural gas that they wanted and needed. And that bid up the price pretty substantially. And it also meant that the relationship between the producer and say in the case of Europe, Russia, and the consumer European countries, you know, were very closely tied together. And the party that had, you know, most of the leverage was the producer. But with this new infusion of natural gas, not just coming from the US, but also from other parts of the world into markets, and with the new technology, and I say new in the last, say, like 15 years of liquefied natural gas being cheaper and easier, what that has meant is that these markets are much more fluid and there's just a lot more options for countries to meet their needs. So Russia suddenly finds itself in a position both in Europe and in China where, you know, the partners or the customers that it has had um, are no longer so reliant on it. They have other options. So the Europeans, I was in Ukraine last November, meeting with the head of the Ukrainian energy company, and he was about to celebrate the first year that Ukraine had consumed no natural gas that came directly from Russia. 
Now, they got natural gas from Russia, but they got it through Poland, through other means. And this creates just more space. And it means that it's harder to politicize natural gas trade. Just think about it because you have insurance. You have other options. So if Russia doesn't sell it to you, you're pretty confident you can get this gas somewhere else. You might pay a little bit of a higher price, but you're not going to go bankrupt. And that really changes the dynamics of interactions between countries. That's great. That, that's really interesting. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading your book. I know we're speaking uh, a few days before it's being released, but I'll post a link to it on, on the, uh, the website. Great, thanks. So I, I'd love to, to switch gears and learn a little bit more about you and how you got into this line of work and got interested in these issues more broadly. So so where are you from? Where are you born? I was born and I'm from Lexington, Massachusetts, which is a suburb outside of Boston. Yeah, boy, a historically I'm relevant one. Where I live today. Ah, there you go. Full circle. Exactly. Um, so how did you get interested and involved in these kinds of, of global issues? Did you have like a family history at all in, in, in it? Were, were your parents involved or interested in these kinds of things? No, I, I would say my parents definitely had a big impact on the course of my career and my professional interests. But more, they kind of steered me in the direction of public service. In terms of an international bent. My family is really not very internationally oriented. And, you know, we've talked about this and I've thought about it and I've tried to figure out exactly where I got interested in foreign countries and international affairs. And it all goes back to, you know, my mother buying these children's Britannica encyclopedia volumes. And I remember reading through them and because I was a little bit of a precocious kid, I decided I would do extra credit and write reports for my teachers. So this is in like first, second, third, fourth grade. And my mom actually recently brought some of these reports out. And, they're, and you know, I wrote a report on Indonesia, where I actually lived in my early 20s, on Afghanistan, which I worked on uh, for President Bush, on Kazakhstan. I developed this fascination with landlocked countries. Now, how could we possibly not have access to the ocean? You know, being from Boston, this is this was mind blowing for my age. And you know, in second grade, I wrote a report about Palestine, which my teacher. This was in the mid 70s. My teacher had to pull me aside and say, "I appreciate this report, but I hope you know Palestine doesn't exist anymore." Uh, and that was the first foreign policy conversation with my dad. So, you know, at a young age, I had this interest, and I think it was developed and encouraged by my family, but developed from outside reading. Yeah, somehow it always comes back to the Arab-Israeli conflict. <laughs> it does. It does. I uh, wish I could remember what my dad told me when I asked him. So no, no reports on energy uh, abundance, or actually the 70s, so it was like the OPEC oil oh. scare, right? So so nothing like that in, in your second grade? No, I mean, I do, remember, I do remember. I do remember. 73 very vaguely, but I remember 79 with the Iranian revolution and gas lines and all of that. But I don't, I don't think I, I wrote a report about it much to dismay. So, so how did you um, sort of start engaging this professionally then or academically? Yeah, well, I, um, I, I went to Georgetown because I was interested in a career in foreign policy, but I didn't have a passport until my junior year abroad. And that's the first time I went overseas, but I was very interested in at the time going into uh, potentially becoming a development economist. So um, growing up in Lexington, which is the site of the first battle between the British and um, 
the American uh, colonists, we had this whole idea of like public service, fight for freedom. This is kind of inculcated into you as a citizen of this town in a very nice way. And so I was eager to, to go overseas. Um, and I went to Indonesia after I graduated from college and spent a year there working in the development field and found that fascinating. But I really caught the foreign policy bug when I returned and ended up working for Senator Moynihan. Oh, okay. Yeah. And this was, this was, can you maybe just like for listeners who are unaware of his relevance in like U S history, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Senator from New York, a Democrat, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, often kind of seen as like one of the fathers of, of neoconservatism as well. Um, Fair or unfair? What, what, do, you, do you want to like explain his relevance in the foreign policy world? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I would say, and you know, I'm biased, but I, I challenge someone to disagree with me. I would say he was just one of the big intellectual yeah, voices mm-hmm. um, in in American politics, not only in foreign policy, because he was very influential in uh, domestic policies. I worked with, for him on foreign policy. And there, um, he was a Democrat, but was really, I think, respected by both sides and often took positions uh, that spanned both parties. So he was someone who was hard to pigeonhole in terms of his views. And when I say he was an intellectual, um, I mean that he spent a lot of time writing books uh, and developing policy positions in great depth. And those were the basis for some of the, his views and achievements over the many, many years that he was representing New York in the Senate. But he also, you know, he, he was uh, ambassador to the UN mm-hmm. um, earlier in his career. So he had a, a long public service history as well. And you mentioned that he's considered to be one of the fathers of neoconservatism. And that's certainly correct. But sometimes I think that can be misinterpreted because most people, especially younger listeners, will think of the neocon movement as being related to the Iraq war and being in a very, very conservative use of American military power. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it really didn't begin that way. This was like an anti-communist kind of uh, thing from from, the, the earlier iterations of it before uh, you know, the, the, the fall of the Soviet Union. It was like an aggressive kind of form of anti-communism. Exactly. And then that is where Senator Moynihan really uh, was a, a big shaper of the movement. And it evolved over time to what it you know, to what we know today. But, you know, his roots go back to that anti-communist. And, and, and so where did you come come in? Like what, what sort of work were you doing with him and, and for him? Presumably what this is in like the, the 80s and 90s, 90s? Um, you're you're not giving me enough credit. It's not the eighties. It was nineties. The nineties. Sorry, sorry. No, it's 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 early nineties. Ninety two. Well, because you said you had memories of nineteen seventy three. So I, I, yeah. I um, No, no. This yeah. is, this is all fair. I okay. Think this is fair. <laughs> you must, you um, must have, have memories so, at a very young age. So so the nineties. So so in the early nineties. Yeah, it was 90s, okay. shortly after I graduated college. I was a junior person, but I was um, lucky enough to be on his personal staff. He had two people doing foreign policy. Uh, my boss, um, Steve Rickard, and then myself. And so I was the junior person. And he, we were on his personal staff, but at the time he was chairman of the committee on Near East and South Asia. So he had a keen interest on the Middle East and on South Asia. And the, you know, working for him was formative in a lot of ways, but the one that I would like to highlight is because it was that period, 92, 93, um, you know, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union had just occurred and everyone was sort of wondering what's going to be the defining paradigm of the next, 
you know, decade or longer in foreign policy. You know, we're in this totally new international landscape. And so I was able to be his very junior research assistant as he was writing a book called Pandemonium, which was a book about how he thought international affairs were going to evolve. And his focus, what he thought was going to be the defining paradigm, uh, was ethnic conflict. And if you remember the 90s, you know, he was right. The 90s, you think about Serbia and uh, Bosnia and a lot of the conflicts in Africa, that this really was a big part of foreign policy in the 90s. So I really um, became interested in one, the issue of conflict and conflict resolution from working with him. But two, you know, I caught the policy bug up on Capitol Hill. So, you know, my ambitions to become a development economist kind of faded away pretty quickly when I saw how exciting it was to be involved in the world of policy, where you could really see how individuals could make a difference. So, so did you stick with him throughout the end of his tenure? Because his, his seat went to Hillary Clinton, isn't that right? Yeah, no, I, I left. I was there for uh, a short period, maybe a, a year and a half. And then I went to graduate school. I oh. went to um, I, I went to Oxford and did a master's in economics and a Ph.D. or what they call a DPhil in um, political science. So and, and, and it was it was uh, that the, it was your experience with with Daniel Patrick Moynihan that made you want to go the policy route. Definitely, definitely. It was definitely that experience. And, and, and I carried through, I ended up writing, um, you know, writing my doctoral dissertation on ethnic conflict, which I'm sure I would have not done had I not had that time working for him. What ethnic conflict or in general? You know, I actually wrote on Sri Lanka. Ah. So I went and I lived in Sri Lanka for about a year and a half doing field work in the mid 90s, which was the height of their civil war. And so looking at kind of the dimensions of ethnicity and identity and Indian intervention um, in that conflict that kind of brought me into that world front and center. And it was interesting. I, I, lots of people say that writing, um, you know, their dissertation is kind of an abstract uh, exercise, but I actually used ideas that I developed in that process later on when I went into government and worked on Northern Ireland or Iraq. What, um, what, what in particular? Could you, could you draw a line from your PhD work in, in Sri Lanka just to Northern Ireland or, or Iraq? Sure. I mean, a big, a big part of the idea of how to mitigate conflict through building political institutions is you know, you're trying to build these institutions in a way that you diffuse decision-making power. So um, if you have ethnically diverse societies, which, of course, Sri Lanka is, you had the diversity in Northern Ireland that led to the conflict. And, of course, Iraq being a very diverse place, um, you put, you're interested in putting into place things like, um, you know, that you need a supermajority in order for decisions to be made or that you need to have, in the case of Northern Ireland, you need to have the votes of certain numbers of, of parties in order for something to be passed. So it's like Lebanon, right? Like the Lebanon model. Type. I'm sorry? It's like, like the, the, the Lebanon parliamentary model it, in a way. It is, although the Lebanon model, I think um, it's interesting. When I was in Iraq, I talked to Iraqis about, are you interested? You know, we were we were talking about their new constitution and what kind of political system they wanted post-Saddam. And contrary to popular belief, 
the the Americans were not imposing a, an American-like democratic structure on them. We were saying, what are you interested in? Do you want a system like Lebanon where, you know, the president says it has the president has to come from this ethnic group and the prime minister has to come from this other ethnic group? And they said, no, you know, we're hoping that one day we'll get away from that kind of politics. They haven't gotten there yet, but I'm hopeful that maybe one day they will. And there's nothing in their constitution that mandates that. But there are all kinds of things in their constitution which make it hard for one individual to make a decision um, that affects you know, millions of people without checks and balances. Now, the downside, as I subsequently learned, is it means that government is much less efficient. So you get more consensus, but it's much harder to get anything done. And there are, of course, costs to that as well. So you did some work on, on the Iraqi constitution? I did. That's um, interesting. I, I actually had a, a very small hand to play. I was a, a research assistant in like 2003 to Noah Feldman, who was a, oh. a legal scholar, also were doing some work, I think probably for the Coalition Provisional Authority at the time. And he gave me this assignment to look up every constitution in the world that I could find that had like um, embedded in it provisions uh, to allow the constitution to be suspended in the event of an emergency. Um, and so I was just kind of like, remember spending months researching, or probably several weeks researching constitutions around the world and like sending him a memo, hoping it might be implemented somewhere. You know, I may have read that memo. There you go. Noah and I worked together in Iraq during the coalition provisional. That's fascinating. Yeah. And then he returned to Harvard. I stayed there and then stayed in the administration. And the Iraqis kind of had two shots at the Constitution. One was an interim one, which was the time that you're referring to. Mm -hmm. And they um, wrote their permanent Constitution a few years later, which is derivative of that first document. Fascinating. Uh, Yeah. well, there you go. The memo had an impact, I suppose. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, so, um, so after you got your PhD uh, or your DPhil, I'll call it a PhD. Uh, yeah, it's Oxford. Doctorate that covers doctorate. both bases. And so, so how what what was your your first gig back in in DC, or, or how did you start to apply that? I came back to DC and I was a research uh, fellow at the Brookings Institution, which is a think tank in DC. And so that got me back, you know, out of the ivory tower, back into the world of policy, which was really exciting. And there, you know, for several years, my focus was on writing policy, policy, policy papers. I was outside of government, obviously, in a think tank, books on American foreign policy and on, um, you know, and on the tools of American foreign policy, and I focused on economic tools in particular, sanctions, which is how I got interested and wrote a, a lot on the Middle East and Iraq in particular. And, so, and and so, how did you end up joining the the Bush administration? So, like many people in my generation, um, and the generation behind me, I was very influenced by nine eleven. I was working at the Brookings Institution. In this job at the time of 9-11, I had a family member who died in one of the World Trade Towers, and it was that experience. I had always been interested in going into government, but it was that experience and that, you know, the aftermath of 9-11 that really made me feel having ideas about foreign policy is great, but maybe the real challenge is turning an idea into action, and that 
in my mind, meant going into government and seeing, you know, put your money where your mouth is. If you think you've got good ideas on how something could be done better, can you actually make it happen? So I was very fortunate enough that um, my boss at Brookings had gone into the Bush administration, Richard Haas, and he was the director of policy planning. And so he brought me in and I started I started my job, I think, the day that Kandahar fell. So about six weeks after 9-11, I found myself in the State Department in policy planning, working for Richard Haas and for Secretary Powell. And and um, uh, at that time, so so you, you mentioned Kenner. I mean, I've, I've spoken to Richard Haas on, on this show, and yeah. um, you know, he's he's kind of explained to me the internal dilemma he had over the the shifting debate towards the the Iraq War, uh, yeah. and 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 I'm wondering how you interacted with that debate at at the time. Yeah, I actually um, I. I had worked on Iraq um, while I was at Brookings, writing a lot on the sanctions question related to Iraq for several years. But when I came into policy planning, working for Richard, my portfolio did not include Iraq. So he was also the presidential envoy for the Northern Ireland peace process. And I helped him in that capacity. So I spent a lot of my time on Northern Ireland, which was actually you know, kind of a separate portfolio because we were you know, going to Belfast and Dublin and London and working on the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement, which had happened just a few years previously. I had a few other issues in my portfolio related to the Middle East, like Libya and Syria and Iran, but not Iraq. And I remember I used to say to Richard, as all of this debate was heating up in Washington, I would say, you know, I have Iraq envy. I felt like, you know, I I wanted to be working on this issue, um, but it wasn't one that I had any particular, uh, I certainly didn't have any influence over it. And I didn't have a lot of insight into it because it wasn't part of my policy portfolio. However, you know, it didn't stop me from, you know, being able to see where the debate was going. And um, it was sometime in early, no, actually it was late 2002 when I said to Richard, you know, if we go to war with Iraq, as it looks like we are moving in that direction, I would like to volunteer and be part of the civilian effort that would go in and and try to help rebuild Iraq. Um, And this, you know, I raised it with Richard several times before he said, okay, you know, be careful what you wish for. And at the beginning of 2003, or sort of maybe late January, I uh, was seconded from the State Department over to the Pentagon uh, to to actually go over with the military before the war. And, you know, I could make up a story which sounded really good in retrospect. But at the time, you know, my impulse was really was pretty vague and I would say pretty naive. I, I had worked on Iraq and on the sanctions piece in terms of researching and studying it. So I felt I had a sense that this was a country that had undergone enormous strain, conflict, sanctions, genocide, I mean, lots of terrible things. And it was going to need a huge amount of international help to get itself back on track. Um, I think I was probably less clear on how, how I personally was going to contribute to that. Um, and I certainly didn't have any real sense of the the difficulties and traumas that were ahead for Iraq, but I did have a feeling that this was going to be um, this was going to be something that I wanted to be part of in terms of trying to help the Iraqis rebuild after 
you know, whatever was going to come after Saddam Hussein. And I, I mean, just recalling from debates at, at the time and articles written about the that, that period of time, it seems that the Pentagon systematically ignored the kind of civilian and like uh, uh, overtures from people like you uh, that were that were trying to make in terms of like, how do you plan for the aftermath of this? Yeah, I think th there's there's two things I would say. I mean, one, there's just there is some reality to that conventional wisdom. I think that civilians um, were even even within an organization, which ORHA, which was the first civilian organization, um, we were sort of not considered full citizens, so to speak. It was still an organization heavily staffed by military people, and the focus was really on the military side of things. Um, but I also would say that a lot of the work that had been done, and I had been involved in it, so, um, you know, some of it was consistent with what was, what was subsequently executed. But the reality was that what unfolded in the early days in Iraq, and, and I went to Kuwait before the war started, and then I went to Baghdad, I don't know, maybe nine or ten days after Saddam fled from Baghdad. So I was there in the, with the first civilian team, so quite early on. And um, a lot of what unfolded just didn't didn't match with the scenarios that had been anticipated and planned for. So while it's fair to say that those plans were not implemented, uh, or you could even say were ignored, in a lot of ways they weren't relevant to the challenges that we found ourselves faced with. So when, when you arrived in Baghdad, you know, nine days after the, the fall of the city to U.S. forces, what was, like, what was your immediate experience? Like, how did you actually get there? We actually, we drove, I think, I can't remember exactly, but maybe there's like 115 of us. We drove from Kuwait up to um, up to Baghdad, and we arrived at the palace, which would later become the headquarters for the Coalition Provisional Authority. But at the time, there was no green zone, um, and there was this palace, which had not been fully cleared. So it was, you know, I remember very vividly driving up, it was dusk, and there were very few women. I don't know if there was a, another woman in the crowd or not, but I remember they said, okay, men in the left wing and women in the right wing. And I was like, as far as I know, I'm the only woman. <laughs> I'm not going to sleep by myself in this wing of this palace that still might have booby traps. So, you know, it really had a feeling of um, that the war was still going on. There was still fighting within the city. Um, and very, very quickly, you got the feeling that um, we just weren't prepared for what was unfolding around us. What was the first indication to you uh, that you were just not prepared? Not yeah. you personally, but like you. you know, the, well, I, yeah. I certainly personally was not prepared, but <laughs> more importantly, I think as a government, we weren't prepared. For me, the first, you know, really vivid memory, and this is very, very soon after arriving, maybe a day, is going to the top of this palace and standing on the roof at night. And so remember, Baghdad had no electricity, no power. We didn't have electricity or power either. Um, and standing on the roof, and it was nighttime, but you could see huge parts of the city because they were all lit up by the fires um, that people had said in government ministries in their efforts to burn files and other things. So I remember um, being part of a group that was talking to Jay Garner, who was ahead of this precursor to CPA, the Coalition Provisional Authority. He was going to be the first civilian voice to talk to Iraqis. And he was thinking about, what do I say to them? 
and his message was going to be, you know, Saddam's gone, but go to work tomorrow. It's like any other day. And that just shows you how little we understood about Saddam's impact on that society, because people went to work the next day, but they went to loot their government buildings. They went to destroy records. They went to, you know, seek revenge in some cases. It was a real unleashing of kind of a state of nature. And you could see that the rules that people had adhered to, the laws, or even just things as simple as traffic uh, laws, suddenly all became a thing of the past once Saddam was gone. That people had obeyed these rules because they did everything out of the fear of Saddam. And once he was gone, it really felt like a state of nature. And we were very unprepared for how to deal with that. And you know, I think one of the things that many Iraqis later told me was our first mistake was allowing that looting to happen. And that kind of set a tone for the rest mm-hmm. of the U.S. occupation. I, I remember there was this like Rumsfeld quote at the time about the looting. It's just like Iraqis showing their freedom or something. It was like a classic Rumsfeldism from the time. Um No, it was very, very detrimental. Um, Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that we didn't have the forces there. I mean, there were subsequent periods where we didn't have enough forces, but it was that they didn't, they, they weren't given orders to combat looting. So that wasn't part of the rules of engagement. And so, you know, Iraqis really got the feeling that, um, that America, you know, it was the first glimpse into America being, you know, not, a country of the power that they thought it was going to be. Um, how long did you end up staying in, in uh, Iraq? I stayed. Um, so I stayed continuously for about 15 months. So the whole length that I went out before the CPA was formed and I left at the time it was dissolved. So that was about 15 months. That was the entire formal occupation of Iraq. And it's interesting. I remember when I agreed to go out or rather I volunteered, the state department asked me for a five week commitment. So I said, great, five weeks, left food in my fridge, said goodbye to my boyfriend, you know, walked out the door and, you know, came back almost a year and a half later. So, um, how did that change you personally, that experience? Um, it, it changed me in so many ways. Um, you know, what, what are the most important things I would say? Um, I mean, it, it really was an incredible lesson in, uh, the use of American power and the soberness with which I evaluate our options and our ability to change realities. But at the same time, you know, my takeaway from that whole experience that I went on to work on Iraq uh, from the White House under President Bush for many years after I returned from Iraq, that whole experience also said to me, um, you know, that America and America's role in the world is vital and that we can make a difference. So I know many Americans think they look at Iraq and they think the lesson we learned there is we don't know how to help countries turn themselves into different kinds of places to become more prosperous or more democratic. To me, that that's not the lesson that I learned. I learned that we can do it. It just takes a whole lot more commitment, a whole lot more resources, and a whole lot more effort than we 
ever imagined. So that we have to embark on these efforts in a very, very selective way. It also really reinforced my appreciation for democracy. And I guess, you know, I grew up in the United States, as I said, I grew up in the kind of what some people call the birthplace of uh, the revolution, American revolution. But, you know, I came to look at democracy in a society like Iraq that is so divided on sectarian basis and on a few other bases that um, democracy was the only way that you could keep that country together and achieve stability. So democracy became important to me, not just as an end, you know, something to aspire to, but it also was the means to stability and prosperity. And obviously I think the Iraqis are still working on that. Um, And that's, you know, that's, as I said, you know, these things take so much longer than um, I think any of us anticipated. Yeah. I I mean, you know, countries like Poland, which have been democratic since 1989 are, are facing their own challenges today. And we're talking about a country that, you know, struggle, like when you're talking about Iraq, it's just so much more newer than that. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, um, but, you know, I, it definitely, um, it, it also, I think I'm a more serious person, uh, which is not to say I was completely frivolous before I went to Iraq, but, um, you know, you, 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 you see people make these sacrifices, be it our, our military, um, Iraqis, other civilians, you know, incredible sacrifices, uh, many of them sacrificing their lives for these causes. And so, you know, there's there's a real sense of serious of purposeness and a little bit of, of, of heaviness because, um, you know, I I became involved with, uh, you know, a lot of Iraq policy over the years that followed as well. And so I felt a real responsibility um, for the United States trying to trying to get our strategy um, to a place where I thought it was up to the task of securing American interests and in doing right by Iraqis. And so that drove a lot of my time in the White House, which is after I left Baghdad in 2004, I didn't return to the State Department. I ended up going to the White House and working for President Bush and spent, you know, a lot of time there, as did many, many other people trying to figure out, like, you know, what what do we need to do differently to actually get this situation um, on a totally different and more positive trajectory? And, and that for the Bush administration was, was the surge, right? Yeah, I would say that was the, the real fruits of those labors of many people. Um, and that was, I think that time and the surge policy review that I was involved with was at the end of 2006 and President Bush made a very courageous decision at the beginning of 2007 to do the opposite of what everybody outside of government or in Congress was telling him to do, which people were saying, we've lost, find a graceful way to depart. And instead, he upped the American commitment um, in the surge. And and that, you know, that that was the first time I think we really got a very fundamental thing right, which is matching the resources we were allocating to the problem with our understanding of the problem and our ambitions for the solution. Uh, well, Megan, I know that you have to run and, and go do a book event, uh, book talk, but, but thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And, and I look forward to, to reading your book. Well, great. It's been fantastic to be on the show and I'm happy to have the chance to connect with your listeners. And I hope some of them will have the chance to read windfall, my new book. And, um, it combines a lot of these issues of basically uh, 
looking at energy as a driver of foreign policy, and certainly the Middle East is a, is a big part of it. Not the only part, but part of it. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Megan. That was great. So appreciate chatting with her and, and learning uh, about some of these issues from her perspective. Thank you all for emailing me, for contacting me on Twitter, etc. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or uh, send me an email via the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you guys. Love learning your suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. So keep them coming. All right. See you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.